Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Genesis chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep slumber. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt No shame. The second reading is on page 986. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at the first verse. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them, male and female, and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. As we've been singing, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would indeed believe 
that uh, your word remains sure today as it was in the past and will be forevermore. So we pray that we would understand it and then believe it and live it. And not least of all, that great truth that we were singing earlier, that uh, Jesus is better than anything else that we might be tempted to think will give us all the fulfillment that we want. And we pray we believe these things now and forevermore. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, thank you again, Ban, for leading us, and Andy, and um, let me encourage you to take up your Bibles and turn, uh, first of all, to Matthew chapter 19. We'll come back uh, to that in just a moment uh, before we look at Genesis. And um, you might also like to dig out one of these, um, the other white sheet that I hope you were given on the way in, apart from the new sheet. Um, It is a handout uh, for tonight. If you want to take notes, um, then I think you'll find that particularly helpful. This is not a topic I ever wanted to engage. I've been content to sit on the sidelines and let the hotly contested social issues of the day be fought by others. The culture war being waged over the proper boundaries of human sexual behaviour and the definition of marriage is a nuclear conflict disguised as a debate. So writes uh, Dale Cuney in the introduction to his book Sex and the I World. And I begin with his words because when I first considered preaching through this series, I felt the same. As I contemplated this moment, it felt as if I had to walk us through a minefield where people were going to get hurt and I would be one of them. Many of you know me well enough to know that I would much prefer to be talking about the gospel of forgiveness and new life in Christ, about influencing Fulwood and Sheffield and South Yorkshire with the gospel about sending mission partners all over the globe. In short, I'd prefer to be talking about changing the world with the gospel. But then that is exactly why we do need to think about this subject tonight and over the next seven weeks. See, as we go and take the gospel and engage with the world, one of the big questions we'll be asked is what we think about sex. 21st century uh, British society is, if I may put it this way, soaked with sex. Uh, Sit down for an evening at home in front of the television and you can't escape it. Uh, Switch on the soaps and sex and relationships dominate the storylines. If the soaps are not your thing, grab the remote and switch channels to to watch a good TV drama and sex will often be a very significant part of the plot. And then, of course, come the adverts, punctuating the programmes and uh, you will see in the adverts uh, image, beauty and sex sell products. And with your remote in hand, you might flick through the channels and land on a pop video and you'll see scantily clad men and women dancing in ways that are deliberately erotic. Land on a comedy show and the jokes will be littered with sexual innuendo. Watch a chat show and the celebrities will talk about their sex lives. Even watching the news or a documentary, you'll be confronted with issues of sexual perversion and historic sex abuse. We live in a highly sexualised society. Every day, in everyday life, we encounter the issues we'll be thinking about over these next weeks. At school, I know that you know fellow pupils who are beginning gender reassignment therapy. At university, most people who are dating are sleeping together. In our own families, we may have loved ones who've come out as same-sex attracted. Sit in front of your computer screen and you're only a click away from pornographic images. And I haven't even begun to mention the struggles of marriage and singleness and dating that are so central to our lives. 
Now, look, I'm not telling you anything you don't know already. You live in the same world that I do. I'm just illustrating that if we want to take the gospel to the world, we are going to take it to a world that is saturated with sex. And so at some point, we can expect people to ask us what the Bible says on these issues. All that said, it's not just about the world out there thinking about sex. The agenda in the wider church is dominated by it too. Richard helpfully prayed for this uh, just in the last couple of weeks the bishops of the Church of England have issued a report following two years of shared conversations on human sexuality and especially on the particular issue of same-sex attraction and it's not just out there in the wider church it's in here at Christ Church Forward in a book called Think Like Jesus the author George Barna B-A-R-N-A George Barna appeals to research that suggests, and I quote, only 14, one four, only 14% of born-again adults, in other words, only about one in seven real Christians, rely on the Bible as their moral compass and believe that moral truth is absolute. So it won't surprise us that as Christians have lost confidence in the Bible as their final authority, so the behaviour of Christians is not very different from the culture around us. So there is little difference in the rate of divorce among Christians in the wider world, and many Christians indulge in pornography regularly. And there's not a lot of difference between single Christians in the way they conduct themselves sexually when they're in a relationship compared to unbelievers, except that perhaps Christians try to keep their sexual immorality secret. Indeed, given the behaviour of many Christians, Barna concludes that most Christians simply do not know the historic teaching of the church on these issues. And so do you see, for the sake of evangelism, and by that I mean every man and woman and boy and girl on this planet who needs to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the sake of the wider church as it debates the issue of sex and sexuality, and for our sake here, right here in Christ Church Forward, we must engage with this issue. And of course it is incumbent upon me as the vicar and the lead pastor of this church to explain what the Bible teaches. That is my job. And so tonight and in the weeks ahead, I'll take us to the Bible and I will do my best to explain what the Bible says. Now if that's my job tonight and over the next seven weeks, well it's always my job, but just while we're thinking of this particular subject, then your responsibility over these next weeks is to listen and think carefully. Uh, to look at the Bible text in front of you and to work out what the Bible is saying. Am I getting it right? That's why I'd love you to have the Bible open so that it's not just your thoughts or my thoughts but the Bible's thoughts. And then to be prepared to read more widely which is why we've given you some suggested books to read that uh, Andy has already suggested. And then to be ready to live out what the Bible teaches and to be able to explain it to others, both Christian friends and unbelievers, as they ask you. Well, all that by way of introduction, so where do we start? Uh, What does the Bible teach on these issues? Well, we're Christians and so we can do no better than turn straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn with me again to Matthew chapter 19, page 986, perhaps you've already got it open in front of you. And um, as we turn to page 986, Matthew 19, 
Here, Jesus answers a question about sex and relationship. He's particularly talking about divorce, which is a hugely complex issue, and I'm not going to get bogged down in that now, but I just want you to see what Jesus says in answer to the question that he's asked. In a way, it doesn't matter what the question is, but look at how he answers. Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That is a quote from Genesis chapter 2. And then he says, verse 6, so in light of what's written, they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, Ed Shaw, in his excellent book, The Plausibility Problem, Ask, what is so striking about Jesus' answer here? And then he answers his own question by writing these words. Uh, The quote is on the handout. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He had the authority and ability to articulate his own answer to this question about divorce. But what does he do? He takes us to Genesis chapter 2 for an answer. Jesus based his sexual ethics on the timeless truths of Genesis despite all that had changed since then. Isn't that remarkable? And a very careful reading of the first two words in verse 5 tell us who Jesus believed said these words back in Genesis chapter 2. I'll read from halfway through verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, he said, the creator said, See, the creator God said the words that follow. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. As far as Jesus is concerned, when we read Genesis 2, 24, we're not just reading any words, we are reading the very words of God himself. And so tonight, as we lay foundations on this subject, we're going to do exactly what Jesus did. We're going to follow in his footsteps, and we are going to turn to the very first book of the Bible... And believe that what we're reading is not just another book, but the very word of God on all these issues. So we're over the page on the handout, if you're still with me. In fact, if you're not with me, we're still over the page on the handout. And uh, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1, right to the beginning of the book. And uh, you barely need a page number, although strangely it's page 3, which I can't quite work out if it's the first page in the book. And the first point, God is good and sex is good. As we come to the beginning of the Bible, we're told that God created everything. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything. God created it all. And as we read through the first chapter, there is a constant refrain. Many of you will have seen this before, but if you haven't, it's really worth noting. The refrain is that God, everything God created is good. Verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. Verse 9, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed Uh, in it according to their kinds and God saw that it was good and that refrain continues throughout the chapter end of verse 18 and God saw that it was good end of verse 21 and God saw that it was good 
End of verse 25 over the page. And God saw that it was good. And then after making human beings, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now that is very important. God made a good world because God is a good God. God's creation reflects his character. It's why love is so central in our existence, because God is love. God creates, God's creation reflects his character. It's why relationships are at the heart of our existence and, and at the heart of creation, because God is in relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relational God's creation reflects God's character. We could go on and on. And you see, we can't read Genesis chapter 1 without hearing that the creation is good. It's because God is good. A good God creates a good, good creation. Everything he made is good. And for our purpose tonight, that includes sex. Look at chapter 1, verse 28. By the way, the handout says chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 40, verse 28. It's not 40, 28, chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Go and multiply. Go and have sex. Have children. That is a good thing to do. It's part of the good world that God has created. And as we look at chapter 2 in a moment... And as we go on through this series in the weeks to come, we'll see that sex is not just designed for procreation. Yes, it was designed so that we could have babies, but sex is more than that. It's a pleasurable and enjoyable thing that God has given to us. Sex is good. God invented it. And everything he made is good. And we need to see that because at many points down through the years, the church and Christians have given the impression that sex is naughty, or dirty. In the words of the much-quoted John Schrader, and I, I, I was wondering whether I should use this, but I will use it. I hope it doesn't offend. John Schrader's not a Christian. He says, To hear many religious people talk, one would think God created the torso, head, legs, and arms, but the devil slapped on the genitals. Now, I think that's a fair comment. It's a little coarse, but it's a fair comment. That is the impression given by many Christians down through the years. So please hear it again. God created sex and everything God created is good. Sex is a beautiful gift from God. Ben Patterson writes, again, the quote is on the, uh, on the handout. Sex is good because the God who created sex is good. And God is glorified when we receive his gift with thanksgiving and enjoy it the way he meant it to be enjoyed. How do you think to think negatively about sex is ingratitude towards God? Now that is a very important foundation to lay as we consider a number of issues through this next weeks. And Ben Patterson's words here give us a very helpful steer right from the beginning. Sex is good, but it must be enjoyed the way God intended it to be enjoyed. See, as fallen human beings, we can and often do take what is good and misuse it for harm. Now consider trees. Trees are good. God created trees, lots of them, a whole variety of them. He could have just made one, couldn't he? And just sort of, well, I mean more than one, but one type. Put them all over the world, but he's given us loads of them because he's a wonderful creator who gives us lots of good things to see. They're good to look at. Many of them produce delicious fruit to eat. Oh, they give us wood to burn from which we can 
We make things as well if we, if we chop down trees. Trees are good. They give them the air we breathe. Without them, we wouldn't survive. Trees are good. But I can chop down a tree, fashion a spear out of it, and run the spear through your heart. I say I can. I mean, I'm not able to do that, but one could. <laughs> then I have taken something which is good and lovely and refashioned it into something which harms The same is true of sex. It's good, but we can take it and refashion it and use it in a way that harms others. Uh, One of the books that I've uh, recommended in the Church Family News is uh, Tim Chester's Captured by a Better Vision. It deals with the issue of pornography, which we'll be coming on to in some weeks' time. In researching this book, Chester spoke to many, many people about their struggles with pornography, many Christians about their struggles with pornography. And here's what one man said to him. Porn has affected the way I view sex and sexuality. I struggle with the biblical concept of sex as a God-given gift for marriage rather than a sinful act in itself. See, when we misuse sex and pervert it, it not only harms others, but affects our own minds, warping our thinking so that we can't see sex as a beautiful gift that God has given to us. Of course, you know this, when people have been raped or abused or exposed to perverted sexual images, it can do so, so much damage that they cannot embrace sex as a good gift at all. But it is true of any time we misuse sex, it will actually have a negative impact on us. Well, we'll think more about that in the weeks to come. For now, know that sex is good and that God is good. And secondly... Uh, Again, uh, over to our next point on the handout. God is good, but we're not. See, as we turn to Genesis chapter 3, we discover why the world is not a good and perfect world that God created. And it's all down to our rebellion. In short, Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden by Satan and they turned away from God. And for our purposes this evening, note two big reasons for their rejection of God. First, they questioned God's word. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Questioning God's word, did God really say? Questioning God's word and then twisting it and confusing it because God didn't say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Look back to chapter 2, verse 16. God said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, except, verse 17, do not eat from this one tree or you will die. Look on to chapter 3, verse 4. You'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Satan says to Eve, God said that you would die if you ate the fruit, but that would, that, that, that you won't die. God was lying. Don't believe what God said. See, they were tempted to doubt God's word and crucially in chapter 3 verse 2 verses 2 and 3 we discovered that Eve hadn't heard the word of God clearly because verse 2 the woman said to the serpent verse 2 we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die See, if you look back again to chapter 2, verse 16, you'll see that God did not say, you must not touch it. God's word had not been listened to carefully enough. Now, God's word was questioned and God's word wasn't listened to carefully. And one of the biggest issues at the heart of the debate sex, surrounding sex and human sexuality is our approach to God's word. 
please note here that Satan puts doubts in our minds about God's word. And it really doesn't help when we don't read it carefully. The second reason Adam and Eve fell was because they questioned God's goodness. God's loving, kind character was called into question by Satan in the garden. Look again at the question in verse 1. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see why that questions God's character? We've already established, no, he didn't say that. He didn't put any restrictions, virtually no restrictions on Adam and Eve in the garden except one. The Lord God gave Adam and Eve the great freedom, the whole run of the garden. Go and do anything, have a great time. Almost nothing was off limits except that one tree. But Satan puts a doubt in their mind, suggesting that God is restrictive and harsh. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then Satan goes further in verse 5. Again, I'll read from verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan says God is trying to keep something from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to develop and reach your full potential. You could become like God. He's not a good God. He's a killjoy. He's out to ruin your fun. And that is the narrative we keep hearing today from those who oppose God's word, and not least of all on this issue. That's the subtle whisper of Satan in our, in our ears, in our minds. He tells us that a relationship we so want can't possibly be wrong. Because you love each other, don't you? So we question God's word. Well, surely God doesn't say that this is wrong. It feels so right. There must be another way to interpret the Bible, surely. And then we, if we can't find another interpretation, begin to question if God is good after all. Because if that's the God of the Bible, then I don't want anything to do with him because he doesn't want what's best for me. How can not marrying this person not be for my good? If God takes that away from me, God can't be a good God at all. Do you see how we question the goodness of God? Where in fact the truth is, it's us who are not good. We think we know better than God. And so as we come to this issue, we need to have a big dose of humility. Let's look around and admit that we haven't done that well with sex. I don't have time or really the expertise to chart how and why our society believes what we believe today, how we've come to this point in our society. On the handout, I've I've recommended a couple of books that have done that. Here they are, if you want to know uh, more. Glyn Harrison, A Better Story. This is fantastic. Not easy to read, but really good. And then Sex and the Eye World, Dale uh, Dale, uh, Cuneo, I've already mentioned him as well. Very helpful. Now, you'll need to read those books if you want to know more. But in short, a great sexual revolution took off in what is known as the swinging 60s. Many of you are too young to remember. I'm too young to remember. I was born then, but I don't remember it. It was accelerated with the production of the contraceptive pill that gave us so-called freedom to have sex. Sex with, quotes, without any consequences, unquote. But it's not been a roaring success. Yes, we Christians must hold our hands up and admit, and as I've done this already, that for many years the church didn't teach that uh, sex was good, 
and the good things about sex. And so we are in part to blame for the sexual revolution. But that said, here we are in the West in the 21st century and no one can honestly say it's good. We're confused about sex, not to say anything about the deeper. No, more than that, the serious pain and problems for hundreds of thousands of people because of the misuse of sex at so many levels. So as we look at the world as it is at the moment, I'm asking for a dose of humility. And as we read the Bible, I'm asking for a huge dose of humility. Asking us to read the Bible humbly believing that God, the good creator who invented sex, really does know how sex works best. Really does know better than us. See, in so many ways, we're in a much better position than Adam and Eve to know how good God is. We live this side of the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at the cross of Christ, we can see how good our God is in going to such extreme and extraordinary lengths to show us his love and bring us back to him to know as our father. God is a good father who knows what is best. We're only finite children. We don't have the whole picture. Be humble. As a dad, I have uh, tried to make the right decisions for my children. I haven't always got it right because I'm not perfect. You can ask them. They're over there. Go, go and ask them after the service. Don't tell them everything, okay, if they do ask you. But they can tell you I've made mistakes. But also, if they're honest, well, don't put them on the spot. But if they're honest, they'll also tell you there have been times when I've got it right. And they'll tell you that on occasions when I have made right decisions, they haven't always understood my decision and they haven't always agreed with my decisions. They haven't always understood why I wouldn't let them go somewhere or why I wouldn't let them do something or have something. They didn't always understand but they, and they didn't always agree, but I think they will say that now looking back, as things have panned out, there were occasions when dad was right. They might even say, I haven't asked them, I'm pleased dad took that decision. Now, the difference, of course, is that God is perfect. He doesn't make any mistakes, and he always knows what's best. And because he is a good and loving father, he always has our best interests at heart. We won't always understand why he says what he says, but I'm asking for a big dose of humility here. And for us to say, I don't know everything, but I do know about my God because he has revealed himself to me in Christ Jesus. And I know that he is loving and kind and he wants the best for me and the best for society as a whole. God is good and I'm not, so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to listen and obey his word and I'm going to do that because I know he's good. And before we move on to our last point, as we acknowledge that we are not good, let me assure you that... that that is true of every one of us in every aspect of life and not least of all when it comes to sex and sexuality. Please do hear this. Because we are all fallen, we all fail sexually. So as we go through this series in these weeks ahead, I'll not be standing here in judgment of others. I am very aware of my own sexual sin. I am very aware that whoever we are and whatever our sexual orientation, we have all failed. 
We are all, and I've chosen this word carefully, it might surprise you, we are all perverted sexually, even those in faithful heterosexual marriages. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at another lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. And so there is no place for smug, proud condemnation of others. And as we think about these issues, we must create a community of grace and humility and foster a loving, non-condemnatory engagement with all the issues that lie ahead of us in the next seven weeks. Yes, we need to hear clearly what God has said because he is loving and knows what is best for us. But as we do, we must be a community of grace where forgiveness is freely and quickly given to all those who who show true repentance. If that is not the church that we are going to be, then I, for one, must be excluded from it. So where have we got so far? And we're nearly at the end. God is good and sex is good. Secondly, God is good and we're not. And third, and over the page on the handout, God is good and marriage is good. And as we begin to draw to a close, we must lay this last foundation for the weeks ahead. You see, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 lie behind all the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality. And not least of all, the words at the end of chapter 2. Look with me again at chapter 2 from verse 21. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Then he took the Lord God, uh, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And here we find God's definition of marriage. Before we go through this, quite quickly, please see that this is not bound by culture or society's expectations. Look again at verse 24, which you'll remember Jesus said were the very words of God himself. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. Do you see what is strange about those words when you think who they were said to? They are said to Adam. But Adam doesn't have a father or a mother. That tells us that this is not just for Adam. This is for all time. We have in these words eternal, unalterable truths. And for their lasting authority, we see that Jesus quotes from them in Mark chapter 10 and in Matthew chapter 19. This is God's definition of marriage, and we cannot redefine it. It wasn't just for Adam, do you see? What does this tell us? Firstly, marriage is between one man and one woman, verse 24. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, man and woman. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And when we remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19, we could add marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life until death, till death us do part. 
But actually, we don't need to turn to Jesus' words to know that. It is expressed in the word united in verse 24. That word signifies a permanent union. And so look at the quote from William Taylor that is on the handout. The man is now to be united to his wife, or as the ESV, the English Standard Version, puts it, hold fast to his wife. That phrase, hold fast, speaks of a permanent, faithful, legally binding union. The King James Version uses a phrase, a man shall cleave to his wife. This is like the idea of welding, that is a gluing together in a permanent, faithful, stable, lasting commitment. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Secondly, from verse 24, God unites a man and a woman together in marriage. God unites a man and woman together in marriage. Marriage, as defined by God, you see, is very different, extraordinarily different from two people living together. Now, we see this clearly in the New Testament. We'll see it later in our series. That people who have sex together are not considered married. Marriage is more than two people living together in a sexually active partnership. Sometimes people ask me, what difference does does a piece of paper make? What difference does a ring make? The answer is the world of difference. For in marriage, as God defines it, God himself joins a man and woman together. So again, Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus quotes these words, he said, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not divide, let man not separate. Words that I say every marriage I conduct. The point is this, something deeply spiritual and binding is going on when two people get married. God joins them. And the third thing this verse teaches is that that joining together is to be expressed in sex. Sex is for marriage as God has defined it. Now we'll think more about this next time when we think about marriage and sex. But again, look at the last part of verse 24. He'll unite them together and they will become one flesh. Now that expression, one flesh, is used in the New Testament to talk about sex. And so the deep spiritual truth that we've just been thinking about, that God joins a man and woman together in marriage, is to be expressed in two people joining themselves together physically in sex. Sex is a good gift that God has given for married couples. Yes, it's for procreation, for having children. We've already seen that in chapter 1, verse 28. But it's for more than that. It is designed to help people in marriage to be united. They are already united, but to strengthen what they already have, what is already true of them. One person says it's an act of unification. Put like that, it sounds far too functional. Sex is a beautiful thing that God has given to us given by God to be enjoyed in marriage, to strengthen the bond of two people already united together by God in marriage. It strengthens love in marriage. It helps keep people together. And so we'll see that the Bible not only says sex is for marriage, and it's okay to have sex in marriage, it says no, far more positively. It encourages married couples to have sex Not just to procreate, but to have sex regularly and not to abstain from it. It's a beautiful thing given by God in a beautiful relationship. Now all that does mean that sex is not for any relationship outside of marriage as God has defined marriage here. 
It's too special and too powerful to be misused. And we'll think about that and think about why that is in the weeks to come. And is that possible to live that way? Well, look, my time has well and truly gone. Next time, we will think more about marriage and about how sex in marriage points us to some of the most glorious truths about our relationship with our God. But that's for later. For now, let's uh, pray before we sing. Our Father, we have been thinking right through this service about you being a very good God. And we do want to ask you to help us to believe that. Not just that you've given us wonderful good things, but that you want what is best for us. You are our Father. You love us deeply. You can see everything. We ask for a very big dose of humility as we come to the Bible and as we come to read your words week by week. And we pray that we would somehow in these next weeks be able to navigate this most difficult situation and difficult topic in a way that would help us to see that you are indeed very good indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.